Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much for the truth that uh, the gospel sets us free. It breaks the chains that bind us. I thank you for Melanie. Lord, she was bound in her sin and the darkness and the confusion that 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 creates. And yet through the ministry of a friend, through the sharing of the gospel gently and deliberately and intentionally, the light began to dawn by your grace in her heart and she saw and she believed. And here she testifies to us this morning about the fact that you set captives free. And I thank you for that, Lord Jesus. Lord, we know that sometimes we allow ourselves to be taken captive by, by other things in our journey. Even as Christians, sin can sneak up on us. It lays crouching at the door, ready to pounce. And sometimes, Lord, it, uh, it snags us. And although we are forgiven, although we are new creatures in Christ, we, we find ourselves bound and enslaved to certain sins. And one of those things, Lord, is, is bitterness and unforgiveness and, and anger towards people who have hurt us and wronged us. And Lord, you came to teach us to live differently, to create a new, new society of people who are marked by love and forgiveness and grace and acceptance and, and the welcome of the gospel. And so, Lord, I pray for us this morning that if there are people in this room who who struggle with this, this issue of unforgiveness and bitterness and, and resentment and anger. I pray, Father, that we could lay it down today, that you would do a miracle in our hearts and, and set the captive free, I pray, that the, that the spirit of love, the spirit of grace, the spirit of mercy, the spirit of God would just flow in this church in new and fresh ways and that it would be seen by our world. I just pray that, Lord Jesus, because you can do it. We know that you can, Lord. You are the God of miracles. You're the God of the resurrection. So, Lord, do a miracle this morning, I pray, in the hearts of those people who need a touch of your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated, and just let me say how much of a blessing it is to be back with you this morning on this uh, beautiful, snowy morning. Last week, we began our study in the book of Philemon, Paul's letter to his friend and co-worker in the gospel. In it, Paul is asking Philemon to do something that I think all of us find very difficult to do, and that is to genuinely forgive someone who has wronged us. It's not easy to forgive, especially if someone has sinned against us intentionally, deliberately, and maliciously. It's a very, very difficult thing to do. When we have been slandered, rejected, betrayed, abused, forgiveness is not our natural reaction. We all react differently to hurt, don't we? Some of us react and we want to hurt back. We want revenge. We want to respond with hurt to the person who has hurt us. And so we lash out at that person in order to try to inflict damage on them as they have damaged and hurt us. Others of us react very differently. Instead of lashing out, we run away. We isolate. We build really high walls around our hearts and we ensure that no one is going to get close to us. No one is ever going to get that close that they can hurt us the way that that other person hurt us. And so we build this wall and we begin to live in a life of isolation and ultimately profound loneliness. Some of us minimize the hurt. Some of us blame ourselves. And so we begin to carry illegitimate guilt. We say, it must have been my fault. 
I must have done something wrong to cause this. And we begin to carry a load of illegitimate guilt that God never intended us to carry. Some of us internalize the wound. We don't talk about it. We don't do what the scripture says. We don't go to the brother. We don't go to the sister who has hurt us. We internalize it. And what we don't realize is that a root of bitterness begins to grow within our souls. And we become slowly but almost inevitably become one of those hurt people who hurt people. Because that's just what happens. Hurt people who live with their hurt become people who hurt other people. So we don't all react in the same way to hurt. In our flesh, naturally, forgiveness is not what we are inclined to do. But as I said last week, it is something that God requires of us. If we're going to be faithful and obedient disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, we don't have an option but to forgive. We are called to be a people who forgive. Why? Well, we talked last week about about forgiveness and about the necessity of forgiveness. It's critical that we forgive because it fosters peace within the body of Christ. It fosters a unity in the church that secondly validates, substantiates, and affirms that the gospel we preach is in fact true. Because when we present it and live it, it is a powerful testimony to the truth of the gospel. And thirdly, it confirms the authenticity of our salvation. When we live in obedience, we know that we are followers of Jesus Christ. I just read in John yesterday, my personal devotions, that Those who love Jesus do what he says. Those who follow Jesus are his disciples. So we're required to forgive, but that doesn't make it easy. It makes it still a very difficult task. Years ago, I was betrayed by a friend. I had hired this guy, brought him into ministry, had worked together, and in time, after a number of years, he was a trusted friend, and he still is a friend, but I was betrayed and it hurt, and it was a deep, painful hurt. I was angry, I was vengeful, I was becoming bitter, and when I, when I did finally forgive, it was with lots of tears. And when I forgave, I realized what I already knew, that unforgiveness, bitterness, is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. Now, I knew that, but it hit me again. When I finally forgave after a couple of months, I realized again that drinking, that unforgiveness is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. I want to show you a picture of my wife. Cindy's not able to be here um, today because she's in prison. Um, <laughs> This is a picture of my wife. It was taken about, uh, I don't know, five or seven years ago. Uh, she is in prison in South Africa. Actually, this is Robben Island, uh, just off the coast of Cape Town, South Africa. And that is the prison cell where Nelson Mandela, I'll show you another picture of the, uh, the cell, where Nelson Mandela, Mandela was jailed for about a large portion of the 27 years that he was incarcerated by the South African government. Uh, no bed, just a mat, uh, no facilities in there. Um, It was a horrific situation in which he lived. Nelson Mandel was not overt about his Christian faith, but he was a Christian. 
And this is what he said as he stood at that jail cell door on the day that he was to be released from prison. He said, as I stand before the door to my freedom, I realize that if I do not leave my pain, anger, and bitterness behind me, I will still be in prison. Now, you're not in a cell today, obviously, but you could be in a prison of your own creation. You could be in a prison of bitterness and anger and resentment and unforgiveness. And that's a lousy place to be, particularly if you claim the name of Christ. Lee Strobel, I'm sure you've heard his name, he says this, The medical evidence is clear and mounting. It is no exaggeration to say that bitterness is a dangerous drug in any dose and that your very health is at risk if you stubbornly persist in being unforgiving. Folks, it's critical not only for the glory and the honor of Jesus, not only for the well-being of his church, not only for the credibility of our testimony and your testimony personally, but it is critical for your own spiritual well-being and your own physical health that you forgive, that we forgive one another. You ask, Paul, how do I do that? You don't understand the hurt that has been inflicted upon me. How can I forgive what I honestly believe is unforgivable? You have no idea what was done to me, how I was betrayed, violated, hurt, rejected. How can I forgive? There's a little phrase in in Ephesians where Paul says this, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. How? Just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Just as God in Christ has forgiven you. I don't think it's possible for us to forgive unless we really understand how God in Christ has forgiven us. And I want to tell you a story. I don't want you to turn there. It was from Matthew 18. Jesus is telling a story. It's in response to Peter asking him a question. Peter comes to him one day and says, Lord, how often should we forgive someone who offends and hurts us? Seven times? Now, I think Peter thought at that instance that he was being really magnanimous, really generous, because the Jews taught that it was required of the law that three times for you forgive. So Peter was saying, you know what, Lord, what, what about this? How about we double it and add one for good measure? So if somebody sins against me, we're going to forgive them seven times. That, that's pretty gracious, isn't it? And Jesus looked at him and said, Peter, no. We're, we're the kind of people who forgive 70 times seven. Just forgiveness is a second nature. It just flows from us. It's who we are. And you say, but how? How is it possible? How do we do this thing when the hurt is so deep? It is so acute. And although it happened 10 years ago, it's still, every time I think about it, it's present. How do I forgive? Well, Jesus tells a story. A king decided to uh, look into his accounting who owed him what? And he realized that it was one of his servants owed him 10,000 talents. Now, in today's dollars, that's about, I did, it, I did the math, did it conservatively, 10,000 talents is about $6 billion in Canadian currency. And so the king called his servant in, 
The servant wasn't able to pay the $6 billion, and he falls down. The king says, well, unfortunately, you're going to have to be sold, and your family's going to have to be sold in order to pay this debt. And the man falls down in front of the king and begs and pleads and asks. And the king says, you know what? Forget it. I'm going to forgive your debt. I'm just going to forgive that $6 billion debt. Now, the man who was forgiven, the servant who was forgiven, went back home, and he did something similar. He looked to see who owed him money, and he found that one of his servants owed him, in today's dollars, about $10,000. Not an insignificant sum, but in comparison, a paltry number to the $6 billion that he owed. So he called this servant in, and he demands the money, and he begins to, begins to choke the man, saying, give me that $10,000 now. And the man falls in front of him, his servant, and begins to plead as he had pled to the king. And the servant who had been forgiven had a calloused heart, and he threw the man in prison until he could pay his debt. The other servants in this man's household saw what this ungrateful servant had done to his servant, and they go to the king, and they tell the king what had happened. And I want to read for you Matthew 18, where Jesus applies the parable. And this is what he says, reading from verse 31, verse 32. Then the master of the king summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should repay all his debts. So also my heavenly father, this is Jesus now. This is Jesus. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or your sister, from the heart. From the heart. How do we forgive from the heart? How do we do it? How do we break that chain? How do we come out of that prison of bitterness and pain and hurt and resentment and anger and walk in newness of life? Well, we need to talk about the nature, the nature of forgiveness. And so let's go back to the book of Philemon, and I want to read with you from verse uh, 8 and following. And this is what Paul says to Philemon about, I think, the nature of forgiveness. Paul says this, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. It would have, I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord." For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. 
If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hands. I will repay it. To say nothing of your owing me your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so to Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. When we talk about the nature of forgiveness now, I need to say again, as I said at least once in one message last week, I am going to leave a lot of stuff that needs to be said about forgiveness unsaid. It's just impossible to deal with such an enormous subject in such a short period of time. So understand that as we talk about the nature of forgiveness and how it is that we forgive. But the first thing I want you to hear is this. In order to forgive, we must trust God and then trust others. Trust God and then trust others. As I said last week, Paul was taking an enormous risk in sending Onesimus back to Philemon. The reality is that Philemon could have uh, had him beaten, could have sold him, could even have killed Onesimus for the crime that he committed in, in, in stealing from him and in running from him. In verses 10 through 14, Paul refers to Onesimus as my child, and he says, I am, in sending him back, I am sending my very heart. Do you see that? I am sending my very heart. In appealing to Philemon, Paul was making himself vulnerable. Paul was leading with his heart. He was, he was wearing his heart on his sleeve, essentially, and saying to Philemon, I love this young man, and I want you to respond graciously and mercifully to him. He was taking a risk. He was stepping out of his comfort zone. He was trusting that Philemon would do the right thing. Paul had made a decision to anticipate that Philemon would do the right thing. And why did he do that? Why did he have a confidence, such a strong confidence in Philemon that he was willing to risk the life of Onesimus in sending him back? About five years before this, Paul had written a a letter to the Corinthians, his second letter to the Corinthians. And he said in chapter five, he said, and he knew it was true then when he wrote it and he knew it was true when he sent Onesimus back. He said, if anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation, All things are passed away, and behold, all things, everything has become new. Now, I believe that it was on that assumption, that that belief, that Paul had confidence to engage with Philemon in order to create reconciliation between his child and his brother in the faith. Paul trusted God, that God was at work, in the heart of Philemon, as he had watched him work in the heart of Onesimus when Onesimus came to faith in that prison where Paul led him to Christ. He knew that God had saved Onesimus and that he knew he was sending Onesimus back to a transformed man, Philemon. And so Paul took the risk. He trusted God and he expected the best from Philemon. And he put his heart out there. 
He led with his heart. For forgiveness to happen in our journey, we've got to take that same risk. We must be willing to believe if the person that we are dealing with, I'm talking about now in the Christian context, if the person that we are dealing with is a believer, if that man or woman is a new creature in Christ, we must anticipate that they will behave in a way that reflects the values of the king and the kingdom. We must have a shared conviction that God is at work. God has been at work, God is at work, and God will be at work in order to bring healing and restoration to this relationship. But folks, it's a risk. It's a risk. Oftentimes, forgiveness doesn't happen in the church because when someone sins against us, when someone drops the ball, when someone messes up and hurts us, that's how we define them from that moment on. That's who they are. They're nasty. They're unkind. That's not how God defines them. And it's critical that we understand that. It's critical that we, def- we don't define people by their failure, but define them by their redeemed potential. Define them the way the Lord defines them. If they are born again, they are new creatures in Christ. And for forgiveness to work in the church, we must have an anticipation that God is at work in the lives of that person, the life of that person. We've got to give them the benefit of the doubt. We've got to expect the best from people. One of the things I used to tell my elders all the time during my years in ministry was that our default position is to expect the best from people. And if you can do that, the process of forgiveness will begin in your heart far more easily than if you define the person based on their failure. Now, do new creatures in Christ sin? Do they fail? Do they act badly? Do they act out of character? Well, as a new creature in Christ, I can answer in the affirmative. Absolutely, I do it. I do it. And so do you. Because we are clothed in this this body of flesh. But that's not who I am. And that's not who you are. You are in Christ. The old is gone. The new has come. And you're not defined By your failures and your sin, you're defined by the fact that the Spirit of God is in you. And if that's true of me, it's true of you. And we've got to give people that benefit of the doubt. Maybe they will disappoint us again. And that's why it was a risk for the apostle. But unless we're willing to bring that wall down and put our heart out there, I'm sending, Paul says, I'm sending you my very heart. You can crush it if you want, Philemon. But I'm sending you my heart. And unless we're willing to do that, predicated on the assumption that the person that you're giving your heart to is a new creature in Christ, forgiveness can't happen. It can't start. It can't happen. Think the best of one another. Think the best of that person who hurts you in the church. Give them the benefit of the doubt. It makes that overture so much easier. 
that initial step so much easier. Second, forgiveness means forgetting, kind of, sort of. Kind of, sort of. In verses 10 through 14, Paul asks Philemon to take Onesimus back. And he, and he sort of plays on the word Onesimus. It, it, the word means, as we said last week, useful. So he says, useful was useful to you, and then he was useless. But then he became useful again when he got saved, and he's useful to me, and I think he can be useful to you again. And in order for that to happen, in order for Onesimus to become useful again, in order for him to live up to his name, Philemon was going to have to trust him. Philemon was going to have to embrace him. He was going to have to forget the offense, kind of, sort of. And I say kind of, sort of, because you can't forget. Forgiveness is not some sort of spiritual amnesia where you forget what happened. Philemon was sinned against. Onesimus stole from him. He violated his trust. He betrayed him. That's their shared history. You can't just deny that it happened. That's not forgiveness. But forgiveness is a choice to treat the person who sinned against you as if they hadn't sinned. It is forgetting the sin kind of, sort of. It is no longer treating that person as if they are unworthy of your trust. It's giving Onesimus again the keys to the strong box so that he can once again manage your house and take care of your money and pay the bills. It is going back into that relationship of trust, forgetting the sin all the while knowing that it happened. How do you do that? Well, that's what God does for us, isn't it? When God saves us and forgives us and calls us righteous and brings us into fellowship with himself and redeems us and calls us children of God, it, it, it doesn't mean that we are no longer sinful, does it? It doesn't mean that we no longer mess up. But he has forgotten the sin. It's buried in the depths of the sea. He remembers it no more. And yet I come to him every night and I say, Lord, sorry for that and sorry for this and sorry for that. God forgets my sin, kind of, sort of. Because he knows all about it and he's disciplining me and growing me and challenging me and changing me every day. And that's what the Lord calls us to do in the lives of each other. As we take that step of, of, of that initial step of trust, as we risk and as we lead with our heart, that person responds and says, yeah, I, I, I shouldn't have done that. I, I'm, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. You put it out of your mind. You stop seeing that person in that light that you once saw them in. You forgive them. You forget about the sin, knowing that it happened. And for most of us, I think that forgiveness is possible. When we see real repentance, real remorse from sin, for sin, real contrition, Real change, real repentance, it's easy for us to say, yeah, you know what, let's put it behind us. 
Let's move on as if it hadn't ever happened. But what do we do when that person who has sinned against us isn't sorry? When there's no contrition, there's no repentance, there's no sense of wrongdoing, no sense of your hurt. Well, again, we must forget, kind of, sort of. What I mean is that we release the person from our vengeance. We release the person from our vengeance and leave that to the Lord. But if they are not repentant, if they don't recognize what they have done to you as sinful, then we are under no obligation, I believe, to trust them again because Forgiveness doesn't necessarily always mean that the relationship needs to be restored. And this is one of those areas where I say, we, I can talk about forgiveness for two weeks, but it takes a long time to delve into these kind of issues. Because that, I'm sure, has produced a ton of questions in your mind that I just simply don't have time to answer this morning. It does mean that we pray for that person who has hurt us. We pray for that one who has abused us. We ask God to bless the one who has hurt and damaged us, to change their heart and lead them to repentance. I read this recently, and I think it's important. Sincere forgiveness isn't colored with the expectation that the other person apologizes or changes. Don't worry whether or not they agree with you or understand you. Just love them. Release them and allow the Lord to deal with them. So forgiveness requires us in either instance, to forget, kind of, sort of, to let it go. Because if we don't let it go, a root of bitterness, a root of anger will will spring up in our heart and not only define you, but it will define others. Thirdly, look for God's purpose in your wounds. In verses 15 and 16, Paul says this, For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, and how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. What Paul is asking Philemon to do here is consider this. He's saying, Philemon, consider the possibility that God was at work in Onesimus' sin that God orchestrated this circumstance. Perhaps God was working here in order to bring about a result that would never have happened, a relationship that would never have been created had it not been for the wound, had it not been for the sin. So, if you forgive this man, Philemon, He's not going to be just your slave. He's not going to be useful. He's just not going to be a a guy who you're in relationship with and you have a cordial, warm relationship. He is now my child. And he will be your brother, both in the flesh and in the Lord. When when Onesimus hatched the plan to, to steal from Philemon, to run to Rome, to betray his master... He had no clue, none at all, that one day he would be the bishop of Ephesus, that he would be martyred for his faith in the Lord Jesus. He had no idea that Philemon and he would become deep friends. 
that they would share a bond of love, a bond of brotherhood in the flesh and in the Lord. But that was what God was up to. And Paul is very gently saying, Philemon, consider perhaps this is what God was doing. This is what God was up to. God had a purpose in your pain. God had a purpose in your pain. I think that's exactly what we need to understand. That when we are hurt, perhaps God has a purpose in your pain. And I say that kind of the way Paul says it. Because I don't think he was saying, perhaps, just maybe. I think he's saying, Philemon, God is behind this. God is in this. God is doing something here that's bigger than you can see, Philemon. Don't discount that God can use the sins of others and, the, and our wounds to bring something beautiful into existence. In this instance, it was a deep relationship between two men who advanced the cause of Christ in the latter half of the first century. God has a plan, and God allows pain to accomplish his plan. You don't need to look any further than the 50th chapter. Well, the, the last story in the book of Genesis the story of Joseph. You know the story. I don't need to recount it for you. At the end, his, his brothers who had betrayed him sold him into slavery. He had been in prison. He had, been just, he had had a terrible, terrible, difficult time. Finally, their father dies. The brothers begin to worry that Joseph is going to take vengeance on them. They go to try to figure out how to, they're going to lie about what their dad says. And Joseph says, look, forget, you know, don't even worry about it. What you intended for evil, God meant for good, to bring about this present result, the salvation of the people of Israel. God works in our pain in order to bring about results that would never, ever, ever have occurred had that pain not been inflicted upon us. So let me just say this. Unforgiveness, anger, Unresolved relationships, bitterness can tell us so much about ourselves. So this is just one facet of this, this issue. When we look at our unforgiveness and why it's there, our default position is to say, well, he hurt me. She was mean. He's a lousy husband. She's a lousy wife. Our default position is always to point the finger. But what I want you to think about is that when that finger's pointing at the other person, there's three fingers pointing back, right? And I think that's what the Lord wants us to see here. Why do I struggle with forgiveness? Why is it so hard to lay this down? Why do I feel such an issue about going to that person who has hurt me? Why? Why? As I say, what we often answer is, well, the other person, it's their fault. They did it. They're responsible. They're culpable. They're liable. It's their fault. Perhaps God wants you to look in your heart and ask the question, "Why, why do I struggle? Is it pride? Is it I've never really dealt with my anger? Is it because I've got this need to be thanked and acknowledged? Because I carry a legitimate guilt. I'm apathetic about the unity of the church. I'm marked by fear. My life is characterized by fear. 
Ultimately, down deep, I'm just selfish. I'm hypersensitive, prickly, easily offended. And the list can go on and on and on. You see, a wise, godly Christian, when they are hurt, is going is to say to themselves, the God who is sovereign over my life, who works all things after the counsel of his own will, has somehow, for some reason, allowed this. Is there something I need to learn? Is there an area where I need to grow? Are there changes that I need to make in my life? Why am I responding this way? Why am I wanting to lash out? Why am, why am I so offended when I don't get acknowledged and thanked for what I have done? The easy thing to do is point the finger. I think what the Lord wants us to do is to look inside, go a little bit deeper, and ask the question, why? Never underestimate what God can do through the pain in your life right now or the brokenness that is in that relationship, whether it's in your marriage, with your kids, with somebody at work, with somebody in this church. Never underestimate what God can do. He can heal it and make it more beautiful, more wonderful, more blessed than ever before. It can always have a redemptive, therapeutic edifying purpose if we are willing to look past our hurt and look at ourselves. Look past that other person and ask yourself, why am I reacting this way? What is God up to right now? What's he trying to teach me right now in my hurt? Fourthly, pursue genuine reconciliation. And this is where, this is where forgiveness really gets to the, this is where the rubber meets the road. As you see it in verse 17, because this is the heart of the letter. Verse 17. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. That word receive there, that's, that is the bullseye of the letter. It basically, it's a simple word in the original language. It basically means welcome, take by the hand, invite into your home, or embrace. And what, what Paul is telling Philemon is, don't sell this guy. Don't relegate him to some place in your, in your home where you don't get to see him very often. Receive him. Embrace him. Welcome him. And I'm sure that as, as, as Philemon sat there at his desk reading this letter from Paul, with Tychicus and Onesimus standing there, this was the moment of truth. What am I going to do? It, it would have been so easy for Philemon to say, I forgive you, Onesimus. Now go work on the plantation outside of town. We'll see you at the Christmas party or whatever, but like, get out of my sight now. That's not what it means to receive. Receive means put your arms around. It means, it means embrace. It means love on. Welcome. Take by the hand. I think a lot of us kid ourselves about forgiveness. We say the words, yeah, I've forgiven you. And we sort of, sort of like we go halfway. But, but we, we commit ourselves to being polite. But we're cold, we're aloof, we're distant, 
We sit on the other side of the church. We keep the wall up. That, that is not what it means to receive a brother or a sister who has sinned against you. To receive means to allow them into your life. It's making peace. It's bearing the hatchet. It's restoring the relationship. Now again, Paul is asking Philemon to do this because he knows the repentance that is in the heart of Onesimus. He sees the change. He sees the contrition. He sees the humility. He sees this man's heart. He says, says, embrace your brother. Make peace. I can guarantee within every church, there are two kinds of people. There are peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus says. And there's the peacekeepers. And man, they are a pain. They are a pain in the church. Peacemakers are intentional about reconciliation. When they're hurt or when they have been hurt, they go to the other person. The other person comes. There is healing. There is acceptance. They, are, they receive back into their lives. The peacekeepers, these are the blue helmet people who know the war is not over, right? The war still exists, but there's no hostility except what's going on under the surface. Peacekeepers retain their hurt. They live with the tension. They smile, they act politely, but they suppress their anger. They put on a facade, they wear a, wear a mask, they live hypocritical lives. But in their hearts, they're at war with the person who hurt them. They haven't received that person back yet. They haven't welcomed them back yet. And peacekeepers are a blight in the church. They're a silent, pernicious, noxious poison in the body of Christ. We talked about this last week. And when Satan sees that in the body of Christ, it gives him license to foster that kind of sin in other hearts throughout the church. Now, that sin, it's like a little bit of leaven that spreads through the body. So I beg with you for the the glory of Christ and for the integrity of this church, don't be a peacekeeper. Be a peacemaker. Welcome others into your life, even if they have hurt you. Embrace them again. Lay down the offense and love the body of Christ. And the difference between the two is a choice. It's a choice to forgive, to be reconciled, to forget, kind of, sort of. So let me conclude with this fifth point. You say, I want to do this, Paul. I want to be a peacemaker, but you know, down in my heart, this wound is so deep. This violation is so incredible. The cost that I have suffered because of this is so hard. I don't think you've experienced what I've experienced, Paul. You didn't have the father that I did. You didn't have the the boyfriend that I had. You didn't have that thing happen to you that happened to me. And that's probably, that's true. 
I don't want to belittle or diminish your hurt in any way. But I want to say this. At the end of the letter, Paul says this. If Onesimus has wronged you or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I will repay it. So here's the fifth point. Choose, if necessary, to live with the cost of another's sin. Choose, if necessary, to live with the cost of another's sin. That's exactly what Paul was doing right here. Paul was using a word, when he says, charge that to my account, he was using a word that he had, he had used all through his New Testament writings. It's an accounting term, and it would have immediately brought the gospel to the mind of Philemon. It's the word, charge, charge that to my account, means to credit, to impute, or to reckon. It's a term that he, as I said, he uses repeatedly in the New Testament to, tran- to describe the transaction of the gospel. And Paul is very forcefully here challenging Philemon to think about Jesus. Think about what Jesus did on the cross. When God charged, imputed our sin to the perfect, sinless Lamb of God, Philemon. God charged what was due you to him in order that you could have peace with God and be brought back into fellowship with God and be reconciled to God and have peace with God. Jesus paid that. He willingly suffered in your place, Philemon. So if Onesimus has done anything, charge that to my account. See, this is both the heart and the essence of forgiveness. Being willing to live with the consequences of someone else's sin. That's what Jesus has done for us, right? And should it surprise us in any way that he would ask us now to do that for someone who has sinned against us? You may carry the wounds of another person for the rest of your life. That betrayal, that violation, that slander, that rejection, that abandonment. And the scars may, the wound may heal, but the scars will remain. But what we've got to realize if we're going to forgive is that Jesus carries scars today. Because what you owed was charged to his account. Jesus' hands, his feet, and his side, today and for all eternity, are going to say, greater love hath no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friend. And that's what he calls us to do, right? To lay down our lives for one another because of what he has done for us. That's love. To live with the scars that someone else has inflicted. Knowing that Jesus lives with the scars that you inflicted. You owed $6 billion in debt. And someone owes you $10,000. 
forgive them from the heart because of what Jesus has done for you. Lay it down. Let it go. Be reconciled. Welcome them back if there's repentance and genuine transformation. Pursue unity in the church. Do it for Jesus. Do it for the church. Do it for the gospel. And do it for your heart. Let the love of God flow through, through you despite the fact that you carry that wound. Let's pray together. Ask God's blessing on these words. Father, I thank you so much for Jesus. I thank you, Lord, for what you did for us. For your passive righteousness and coming into this world to be the Lamb of God and your active righteousness living a holy and perfect sinless life and qualifying thereby to go to the cross as our perfect substitute. And I thank you, Lord, that you carry wounds today that we gave you collectively. We gave you a debt that you carried. We could never pay. You bore it. You drank it to the last drop. And you gave us your perfect, sinless righteousness, covered us over in your holiness. And we are now children of God. Six billion dollars worth of sin is gone, buried in the depths of the sea. And now someone has sinned against us. And it's not an insignificant thing, Lord. But you call us to lay it down, to let it go, and to forgive. I pray that you'd give us the grace as we look to our Savior, his bleeding side, his pierced hands and his feet, as we understand the transaction of the gospel, what was charged to your account, Lord. Let us forgive from the heart, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.